Hi, this is Annie Fox of Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. In honor of Autism Acceptance Month, I've reached back into my unpublished podcast to bring you this recording from March 2012. It's a conversation with Shannon Desroches Rosa, a self-proclaimed kick-ass writer and blog her contributing editor on parenting children with special needs. Shannon is also the parent of her own three kids, one of whom is autistic. In this interview, I talk with her about her parenting journey and the making of her outstanding book, The Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. Hi, Shannon. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Yourself? Very well, thank you. Um, I wanted to thank you for, for all your obvious hard work in putting this book together because um, it's... it's it's a masterwork, <laughs> and I'm I'm really curious about um, all kinds of things in relation to this project, and also obviously the content. But I wanted to ask you how you and your colleagues got the idea to put this book together, and how long it took, and those particulars. Okay, sure. Um, the book came about because I was I've been writing about autism and parenting since 2003, and then writing a column for blogger.com specifically on special needs parenting in 2009. And I really, they did a great job promoting all my columns, and I thought they were really helpful. But then you know how the internet is. Once a column is out, there's a kind of a subduction, and it goes underneath the fold, and, and people don't necessarily see it anymore. And I thought a lot of those not just the the columns, but the discussions that the columns generated kind of needed more, they needed to be out more in the public eye. And then at the same time, a couple of my colleagues and I, uh, Jennifer Bide Myers and Liz Dietz, were getting really frustrated because we would, there were so many autism books coming out there. I mean, there's just always autism books coming out every week. And none of them were doing what we wanted to, none of them were the book we wanted or we would have wanted when our kids were first diagnosed. Tell me the contrast between what was coming out in the current market and how you could see from your perspective as a parent who's been on the journey for a while, how that would not have been helpful to you. Sure. So what we would have wanted is a really rational, compassionate handbook that to say, look, what is autism? Tell me everything I need to know. What are my next steps? And how do I make good decisions? Because there are so many competing approaches out there and people who are really passionate believe in all of these approaches, but some of them are useless at best and other approaches are actively harmful, not just to people with autism themselves in terms of treatments like chelation, which is a medical procedure for removing metals from your body, but then harmful to people with autism in terms of approaching them as broken, so disrespectful to people with autism, not seeing them as whole people. And then a lot of them are just expensive for parents who don't necessarily have a lot of money uh, to go out and get second mortgages so they can try and cure their child using an approach that doesn't even work or even have a basis in traditional and mainstream science is is really problematic. And certainly got from my reading of the book was that that roller coaster of um, hope and expectation Mm -hmm. and and what that does to the family and the stress levels and all of that stuff and for naught. In a lot of cases, yes. So what we wanted to help people do is to learn to think critically and rationally about autism, even when they are in the grips of this kind of 
whirlwind of new diagnosis and emotional overwhelm and, and, and so distraught. I mean, so many parents are so distraught when they learn that a child is diagnosed with autism. So we wanted to help them get through that. We also wanted to let them know that even though the media tends to perceive autism and people with special needs as like this lightning bolt of bad luck, you know, people, people with special needs are part of our community. They've always been here. You know, autism has always been here and we need to work more on saying, okay, this is just This is another way of being. This is somebody who needs more support. Yes. Who needs more understanding. Yes. That doesn't make them other. That doesn't make them less than. That actually, so that's somebody that we should rally around even more. These are families that we should support even more. These are families who need understanding and compassion, but not pity. And going to your own personal experience, how old is is your child who has autism? Leo, uh, he's 11. He turned 11 in November. So 11 years ago, well, tell me when when you got the diagnosis, when was that? We got the diagnosis, well, when he was about two, we had a doctor say, well, if he was three, we would call this autism. Um, So we knew something was going on just before he turned two. A family friend who was a pediatrician actually pointed it out. We went on a on a, a, a family vacation, both families up to Sebastopol, and we spent a few days together there, and our friend was uh, surreptitiously giving Leo developmental evaluations the entire <laughs> weekend. And you, you were not aware of this? No, no, he was really sneaky. And so at the end of the weekend, he told us that we should get Leo evaluated because he was very specific. He said, you know, he's not responding to his name. He is not engaging in joint attention. He there, you know. So these are things that you need to check out. Tell me, was is Leo your first firstborn child? He, Leo's my second child, and he's twenty one months younger than his older sister. But his his older sister has always been extremely precocious. Okay, well then, more to the point of my question is that um, comparing your first child with Leo mm-hmm. um, before your pediatrician friend. Um, made the suggestion to you. Um, did you have some inkling that there was something amiss? Not really. I mean, he's always been a, a very bubbly, affectionate, sweet child. Mm-hmm. So, um, in terms of you know autism stereotypes of of remoteness and being in their own world, I mean, even when people fulfill their stereotypes, there's a reason for that. If you understand why they are behaving that way, that is not, doesn't have anything to do with not being interested in your world, but the way in which they perceive the world in general. But with Leo's case, we just figured he was not his sister. Good point. And he isn't. (laughs) Yeah. We just figured he was his own person. Uh, there, he had a little bit of a funky crawl that he did that uh, that I was worried about, and I asked our pediatrician at the time, and he was a very traditional pediatrician whose only real uh, knowledge of autism seemed to be more like the traditional counter type, the very removed child who did not engage with other people, and you know he could see how affectionate and 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 bubbly Leo was, and he said, well, "Let me tell you about children with autism. This child ch- this child does not have autism." Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> Okay. It was several months until our friend pointed out that Leo was not, you know, he didn't even focus on milestones. He just said that these kinds of social skills and your your son and, and communication skills and your son currently does not have them. So you might want to get that checked out. At that point, so it's is nine years ago, what resources were available to you as a parent who was just receiving this diagnosis? 
or there's certainly nothing out there like our book. Often we create content um, <laughs> to help people who are who are not as far on the road as we are because there was nothing like it when we needed it, right? <laughs> exactly. So at that time, it was it was very it was brutal. I mean, we went to the regional center, which is those I don't know if you know about the regional centers, but they're specific to California. Um, they help people with developmental delays and other special needs until age three. Their doctor evaluated Leo, and he's the one who said, well, if he was three, we would call this autism. And they said, yeah, well, you know, here you go. You can have, we'll, we'll provide you with some speech groups once or twice a week. And that was it. They, they gave us some printouts, but they didn't really give us direction. And part of that is because, you know, th- this doctor saw and evaluated 10 kids in a day, every day. Right. So um, they don't really have a whole lot of time. They're stretched pretty thin. What was your and your husband's emotional state when you left this regional center? I was absolutely shocked and distraught because all I knew about autism was Rain Man. I mean, that's what a lot of parents my age say. You know, especially a lot of parents of kids Leo's age say, I think, you know, there have been a lot of role models in the interim that people can cite now. But at that time in 2003, you know, there, Temple Grandin was not the figure she is now. I mean, there wasn't, there weren't people like Stephen Wiltshire. There weren't people like Daniel Tammet um, out there. There weren't people like John Elder Robeson uh, and all these people being role models for, you know, smart, competent people with autism making their own way in the world. So um, all I, my only knowledge of autism was that it was a devastating lifelong disability that would mean that my son would never be independent or happy. Wow, what a a blow. Like anybody else, people with autism just need to be in the right environment to be happy. And I just spoke with a woman last night who has a, a teenager, and she was talking about how her teenager really doesn't really care about peers, you know, loves adults, loves hanging out with adults, loves socializing with adults, doesn't really care about peers. And she was concerned, like, well, shouldn't my child be interested in peers? And I said, is, is your child happy? She said, yeah, my child is extremely happy. I said, I don't think you really need to worry about that. Well, I'll tell you from my perspective, sweetie, um, all of the angst that comes from the social drama um, amongst peers in middle school and high school, mm-hmm. this young woman... <laughs> <laughs> is um, bypassing a lot of heartache in many cases. <laughs> I, I just, you know, but there's the, the social pressure to to conform with your your peer group. I said, you know what? If your child doesn't care, they are so lucky. <laughs> yep, that's my point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so you're able to, at, at this point, um, nine years down, down the road in your journey, able to... Um, provide parents with perspective and hope and resources and and all the things that nine years ago were not handed to you? No. We want people to get past fear and misinformation and negative stereotypes. I mean, essentially, that's what we do. We want to educate people. We want to let them know that this is just not the end of the world and it's the beginning of a different world, probably, but I mean that's okay. There are so many. There's so there's so many wonderful communities out there. I mean that's another th- role that we have now with Thinking Persons Guide is is there's so much great community, not just on our website on thinkingautismguide.com, but on our our Facebook. And we just 
hit, I think we've been, the Facebook page has been up for about a year and we just hit 8,000 people. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And I mean, it's so fantastic because people will, you know, we don't let people post on, on the wall without asking because we had a lot of people try and promote products and things like that. But we, you know, people send us questions and we post them and they're just amazing. We had a, uh, a really experienced behaviorist who had a new client who was having real issues with aggression and she had some specific questions and we posted her questions on our Facebook page and she had, you know, like 16 responses within an hour. Oh, that's so helpful. I know that in any kind of situation where, especially with the, the um, health and well-being of a child and you're new to this whole, this whole arena, I, I can just imagine how isolating emotionally it can feel and to be part of a community for you guys to to provide this is is absolutely wonderful and life-saving I'm sure you know I do worry about people who aren't online or who aren't finding these resources and that's again one of the reasons that we created a book so that it's something that exists in the real world we're, we're hoping we're encouraging people to you know, donate copies to their pediatricians we're encouraging people to ask libraries to purchase copies and um, to help get these books into the hands of people who are making a difference or who are looking for information in the offline world as well. Yeah, that's excellent. I'm wondering, had you thought about the idea of creating an audio version of the book? That's one of our one of our projects. I think it's a huge project to do it well, and it, you know, you've you've got quite a lot of voices in your book, <laughs> and uh, you know, to to do it well is is a huge project. But um, yeah. that's. I'm glad you're thinking about that. It's another way to get information to people who are too busy to sit down and read. Well, it's not just that. It's an accessibility issue. Yeah. That's something we're definitely exploring in general. Uh, We've been doing a lot of radio appearances, and we have some more scheduled next month for Autism Awareness Month um, or Autism Acceptance Month, depending on your perspective. And we're working really hard right now to find out a way to have on-the-go transcriptions or easy transcriptions afterwards because, as you know, um, transcribing is really hard work. It's very and hard work. Yeah, and, and, and to do it right and to do it elegantly. So we're trying to um, – we're working on that. <laughs> Speaking of elegance, I have to tell you I'm a very critical reader, being a writer myself, and mm-hmm. um, your book is wonderfully written. Oh, I'm so glad I think so. Yeah, I, I um, it's, it's it's very readable. Um, the conversational tone is is very assu- reassuring, and uh, I think that as you stated your goal to um, have the voices of of real people talking about this with the authority of their experience, I, you have exceeded your goal. I hope you're very proud of what you guys have put up. It's so great to hear from somebody who really understands. <laughs> what we were trying to do yeah there are so many you know actually there are books in the last year or two that have started coming out that are a little bit more especially in the last year that are a little bit more with the evidence-based perspective but they're dry they're clinical you know they're written by they're written by medical professionals or autism professionals from the perspective of their research or you know, their clinical observations. And parents won't read those books. You know, they might buy them, but they won't read them. It's really, it's really hard to digest those books. And so that's why we came up with the format that we did with you know, 50 different authors and more than 60 different essays, short essays. So you could go right to the section you want, right to the topic you need, and just get the information you need out of the book. You know, you don't necessarily have to read it cover to cover, although we are hearing from a lot of people that that is what they're doing. 
but we want it to be engaging and comforting, you know, and compassionate. Yes, and and that tone comes across in in every essay. Because my work is focused very much on middle school and high school students, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, um, and forgive me if I didn't get through all of your 50 essays, (laughs) are there the voices of teen teens who are on the autism spectrum in the book we do not actually have any any teens themselves we cover puberty and related topics from the parents perspective in a couple of stories by laura shoemaker and holly robinson pete this is what's great to have with the website as well because we still publish at least three essays a week uh, original essays or we we curate essays the best information that we find and publish it on our site so that we have had teen voices on our site. Yeah, that's great. I can imagine that's very important for um, young people to say, where am I in all of this? You're yeah. talking to parents, and the doctors are talking, and the therapists are talking, um, but but I don't see myself here. Yeah. What we do have, though, is we do have the perspectives of many adults with autism, and we do have one um, one of my favorite writers is uh, Corna Becker. She's a, a young adult with autism, and she talks a lot in her essay. What I want you to know, she talks about what it is was like to be a teenager with autism. So when and she was diagnosed when she was seventeen, and not having any explanation for why she was weird or different before then. So if you haven't read, I haven't, that, and I will. <laughs> that that's probably the essay in the book. That one and Laura Shoemaker's Puberty. Those two are probably the most relevant to the work that you do. Wonderful. Um, tell me, in terms of education and what we used to call mainstreaming. Mm-hmm. Typical kids with atypical kids. I'm sure it's different across the country from district to district, but tell mm-hmm. me what, what your experience has been. Well, Leo actually attends an autism school, so he's actually on a segregated site. And that's just turned out to be what his he needed, and, and I don't have a problem with that at what, all. What is an autism school for those, those of my listeners who may not? Yeah, his, his school is it's solely uh, attended by children with autism and similar disabilities who need a one-to-one educational setting. So they need a, a, somebody with them at all times. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's his, his school is called the Morgan Autism Center. And this is obviously not a public facility. It is a non-public school. So uh, what that means is that it's not a private school. You can't say, I want my child to go there and apply and get in and pay for it. It is actually something that can only be paid for by the school district. Um, Parents cannot choose to have their children to go there. They have to be evaluated and designated as appropriate, and then the school district pays for it. So um, it's based on needs. It's not based on ability to pay. What is is the frequency of these kinds of schools, do you know, across the country? I don't know about it around the country. I mean, I know I have a lot of friends around the country whose kids go to these schools because I know a lot of people who have kids who are very much like Leo. Mm -hmm. I I don't think there are they're not that common. There are only a few of them in our in the Bay Area here in the in the, the peninsula in South Bay. Mm-hmm. So they're not that common. And they're certainly much less common than uh, than private schools and public schools. So then, what commonly might be the educational experience of a child who doesn't have a school like this in his or her district? They would probably be either in a special day class on a regular campus or they would be included in a campus. Uh, there are some really great 
um, inclusion programs even in our school district. For instance, there's a my local school that my kids would go to, except Redwood City has such fantastic uh, magnets that one of them is in a gate magnet and one of them is in a Spanish immersion, and they're both public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but the the regular elementary and middle school, that's our local school, has an inclusion program where the, there's one or two children who are designated as Asperger's or similar needs in each classroom. And then those kids in that program, they have their own homeroom where they can go to, where they have social skills training, when they have standardized tests that they can go there. You know, When they're in the classrooms, they either have an aide partially or full-time and so, and that's a lovely program. That's been working really well. Now, my question always, because as you might know, um, I focus on peer harassment mm-hmm. and uh, friendship issues. Okay. What do you hear from, from parents and or, or older students themselves about the level of acceptance from the neurotypical kids when you've got an atypical kid who's there for part of the day? Yeah. Um, yeah, what, what's it like? Yeah, you know, it really depends. Um, I think that the most successful environments are the ones that go with, um, I don't know if you read Diane Leventhal's post uh, article in the book called uh, Make It an Open Classroom Discussion. I, I didn't read that one. I'm making notes of all the ones I missed. <laughs> I would recommend you read that. Basically what happens is kids are fairly accepting of each other just in general until around third grade. Just what I was going to say, until around, and I was going to fill in the blank, third grade. <laughs> until around third grade. That's when they start to get cruel and exclusionary. So Diane Leventhal, she's a local uh, social skills uh, professional here in Redwood City. And she, what she does is she comes in and she goes into classrooms and, ha- and say, it's okay to talk about differences. Let's talk about these differences. If somebody acts this way, there's a reason for that. Let's talk about what that might be. And then the, and the children, all of the children, the child who has Asperger's or autism or other social skills needs and the typical kids, they all have this discussion together so they can say, like, if you are constantly asking me to play Batman with you, that bothers me. And then the child with Asperger's can say, if you talk really loud, that hurts my ears. And that's why I might yell at you. Right. Basically, you know, this is something that parents can do. It doesn't have to be done by a professional. That's why she wrote this essay. It was basically to train parents to be the ones to go in and lead these discussions in their kids' classrooms in third grade or before so that the kids can understand what it's like to be different and that it's okay and that it's okay to talk about it because, you know, the the teachers are not the ones who are engaged in the social activity. They monitor, they supervise, but the ones who are actually doing the socializing, those are the kids. Yeah, that's true. But I will also say that the teachers play an enormous leadership role. Absolutely. But what what I'm what I mean to say is that you can't just train the teachers, you have to train the kids too. That's true. And and beyond third grade, um should we just say oh well. Oh no. It's horrible, but that's that's where people like you come into play. I mean, I think a lot of the work that you do is appropriate to kids with autism and Asperger's as well because it really has to do with kids who stand out and are penalized for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Or whatever the difference is. I mean, sometimes it's subtle. 
but sometimes, you know, as with kids with disabilities, it's not. It's not subtle, and and um, the ganging up effect, um, it's it's so toxic. I mean, you don't need me to tell you this, Shannon. Yeah. And and in a case of a child who may not have the social skills to pick up on what's going on around them, mm-hmm. that makes them even more vulnerable. Absolutely, and probably just in terms of being written beautifully, but also in terms of uh, really just really being very touching is uh, my probably my favorite essay is Krista Dahlstrom's essay just passing through about her son with autism and hyperlexia who essentially you know his 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 disability is invisible because he is not just verbal he is precociously and amazingly verbal he's such a brilliant little boy but his social skills you know he doesn't get typical social cues so you know people We'll talk with him and they'll, they'll think he's an, this amazing kid. And then when something doesn't go the way he expects it to and he has a difficult time, then people think he's a spoiled brat. And kids kids don't always know how to interact with him because, they, you know, he, he's got his own thing going on. I mean, he's, again, he's just the most amazing. One of the, He's one of my favorite kids. I know him personally. He really is. He's so amazing. How old is he now? He is eight, I think. He's eight, Yeah. But her essay talks about what it's like to parent a child who can pass, essentially. Mm -hmm. So people don't give kids who can pass. They actually give them, it's much harder for them. People do not cut them slack the same way they do with people who have obvious disabilities. This is always so interesting to me, especially as I say, when I, I am immersed daily in this idea of insider versus outsider and real friends versus the other kind. And, you know, there's this, this pecking order that seems to happen. Um, actually, you said third grade, but interestingly enough, I just came back from St. Louis, where I, I visited like five schools in four okay. days and gave 16 presentations. And oh my God. the um, youngest group I spoke with was first graders. And the, the teachers there in advance of my coming gave all the students an opportunity to anonymously put in questions in a Ask Annie box. <laughs> oh, wow. About their experience about real friends versus the other kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't help but be touched by all of them, not knowing what the experience of any of the kids was. But it seems to me all of them have the sense that at one time or another, people are not nice to them. Mm -hmm. And they're very sensitive to that, but I'm sure not as sensitive to the behavior that they put out in the world. Mm -hmm. So I actually have a couple here from the first grade, which um, some of them are actually heartbreaking, but intriguing to me because... For these neurotypical kids, I'm guessing that's from, you know, that's who they are, but maybe not. But um, how articulate they are about these feelings of exclusion. Here, if a friend talks behind your back, should you be their friend or not their friend? Um, What if someone was left out in the open and you crowded around and then someone got bullied? What do you do? So these kinds of questions about here I am a bystander or, or it's happened to me or um, how do I become friends with a very short-tempered person who's always wanting to be around my other friend? So it's like awareness of difference and, and what power do I have to move the group in a positive direction? Yeah. How does that put me at risk socially? These are questions from first graders. Wow. So I'm thinking I'm impressed with the level of um, 
nuance mm-hmm. in the way they are seeing the social strata in their classrooms and um, what great opportunities there are for educators to talk about, as you say, differences and inclusion. And, um, and then there's the other part of it too, which is that everyone has the right to choose their friends. Yep. And so we can't just say you, you need to be nice to everybody all the time mm-hmm. and you need to let them play with you all the time because that's, that's not real. Okay. Yeah. No, you don't have to be friends with everybody. I mean, this still pervades into the adult world. Right? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't it? And, and how awkward it is when someone is reaching out to you and wants to spend more time with you than you want to spend with them. Um, I don't know if you read, there's one of the essays that I wrote is called, I want to tell you a secret about autism awareness, I think. Yes, yours I read. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really goes about understanding why people behave the way they do. So instead of like taking actions at face value, Um, As long as people are trying to understand why people behave the way they do and making their decisions about being friends on that rather than the actions themselves and what they assume they mean. Because a lot of times when kids with autism and Asperger's, the way that they are behaving doesn't necessarily have the same meaning that it does for other people. Right. You know, like, so if somebody, again, like if somebody screamed in somebody's face and ran away, it might, it's not necessarily because they're a a jerk. It's because there, I mean, there could be so many reasons. It could be because, you know, there was too much noise or it was too overwhelming to have people stand that close to them or because they had been lost in their own world and thinking about, a game that they were playing and perhaps there was a very, you know, this is where Krista's um, essay comes in. Like there's part of the blacktop was they've designated that as an alligator swamp and you just stepped in the alligator swamp, but you wouldn't necessarily know that unless you knew the game that they were playing, which they haven't told you. Right. You know, so just learning to have the skills like, are you playing a game right now? Can I, can't, you know, just learning how to interact with somebody and understand why they are behaving the way they're doing. And then if you can do that, if you can get those skills, then you can make decisions. You know, you can say, and you can be, uh, the thing about people with Asperger's and autism is, for the most part, you can generally be very straight with them because in a lot of cases, like for instance, like my son, he's, he's right there. He's completely honest. He's not going to try and spin something in a way to to spare somebody's feelings you know what I'm saying so you can um you can be completely straight with them I mean it doesn't mean you have to be cruel or rude but you can ask direct questions for the most part and you will get direct answers so here's a question for you then if you if you ask direct questions and you get direct answers does that allow the child with Asperger's or autism to then modify their behavior if, in fact, they want the friendship with this person who just gave them the feedback? Well, then at least they know what they're dealing with, right? You know, at least if you have the information to make decisions, it might be that they would say, oh, if you're, if you're not willing to play this way, I'm, I, I have to play this way or else it's not fun for me. So I guess we're not going to be playing. Maybe we can, and then, then this is where the people around them can help and suggest perhaps other things to do that they both might be interested in. Because in a lot of cases, kids with autism and Asperger's might, if they're interested in one thing, they might not be interested in coming up with alternative ideas for things that they could do, but they might be receptive to them. And that, yeah, and that's where, as I say, the, the adults, the teachers, the parents um, have such an enormous 
potential for positive influence so yes. that it doesn't just hit this dead end and oh well I guess there's mm-hmm. no commonality here we can't we can't have any positive interactions together let's go our separate ways that's so limiting and and I love what you just said because the idea that the adults around should have as part of their mission to make this as much of a cohesive community within this classroom as possible yeah. instead of just like We'll just endure this child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and and you see that kind of stuff. I was in a school, um, yeah, it was, it was in St. Louis, and th- there was a child in one of the classes, fifth or sixth grade, I believe, who was neurologically different, and mm-hmm. obviously so, and she looked quite different. And actually there were two in that class, come to think of it. And, and the girl was very quiet and serious. She asked one question, um, during my, my presentation and I, I saw that the other students, the, the neurotypical students were interested in what she had to say. The yeah. boy, on the other hand, was a nonstop talker mm-hmm. and, um, he, he was in the front row so that he didn't see the people behind him okay. who were eye rolling, shifting uncomfortably. When will he come to the end of this? Oh my God, is he asking another question? All this like quote-unquote tolerance Mm -hmm. but I was just right there with him because I know that my behavior is part of their learning too Mm -hmm. and and not to try to hurry him up not not to do anything except be there with him and make sure that I understood the question and treat him with 100% respect that he deserved and and I noticed that as he went on and as I continue to hang in there with them with him the other kids relaxed (laughs) Oh, wow. <laughs> They're just like, okay, uh, we're on for this ride here. We don't have to wish it was over sooner than it is. We're on for this ride. <laughs> I love hearing stories like that. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I think if we um, are going to walk the walk in terms of inclusion, and for all the people who experience um, differences among us, and that's all of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> plus what we put out that is different, um, that, that this as well, needs to be part of the curriculum and not necessarily part of the silent curriculum, but Mm -hmm. part of the out there curriculum that our role as educators and parents, who are also educators, um, needs to be that we're trying to raise good people. And good people have open hearts and are empathetic and do their damnedest to take the other person's point of view so we can understand and learn. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I know you do. (laughs) Thank you so much, Shannon, for taking your time to talk with me today. Um, I've learned a lot, and I will continue to to dip into this book. I I need to learn more about this because a lot of people come to me with with all kinds of questions. Now I have a resource Mm -hmm. to refer them to, but also... Mm -hmm to have some more understanding for myself because everything I read makes me a better educator and a a better helper for parents and kids who are out there. So thank you for writing it for my own personal edification, but thank you for the the wider world because they they need it. We all, we all need to know more about what is it like to accept your child for who your child is without trying to fix him or her. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really powerful message. And I think you, you guys have done it really brilliantly because you're talking from from your heart and from your experience. So there's a real difference between supporting and fixing. A, a big difference. And I love the whole idea of, and this is news to me. It's like, okay, there's there's really there's nothing quote unquote wrong 
this mm. this is who I am. I have a different way of looking at it, of, mm. at the world, experiencing the world. And there's something for you to learn by, by allowing me to um, express myself. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can be an educator as well rather than someone who needs to be fixed. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is that with so many other disabilities, you know, people don't expect people with other disabilities to just get over it or to just do things that they can't do. But people expect that with people with autism all the time. And I think people just really need to take autism more seriously as a legitimate disability, especially when it is invisible. And um, you're doing great service. So thank you for your work. I'm I'm happy to support you in any way that I can. And um, keep up the good work, Shannon. Annie, you too. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. To learn more about my work of tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com, where you can also find a free excerpt of my parenting book, Teaching Kids to Be Good People. And tune in next week when my guest will be Judith Warner, New York Times bestselling author of We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication. Till then, happy parenting! Happy parenting!